0: name minutes, project number five, it's Silverado this time, that's no child by Lawrence Kastin, who wrote the show, let's settle up now kids, cause here we go. Well howdy everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Silverado Minute Podcast where each week... You've been listening to Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan written and directed classic Western Silverado one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host, Alan Sanders of the Wilder Ride podcast. My buddy, Walt Murray, unable to join us today, still enjoying time in the honeymoon suite. And uh, I'm going to let him enjoy that. He can put more quarters in the magic fingers bed while I take you through minute 127 of this magnificent Western Silverado. When last we left, our main characters, Cobb and Payton, were squaring off right in the center of town, but not dead center, center of the street. They're at the far edge of town, right outside the sheriff's office, but behind Cobb, nothing but wasteland, nothing but desert, nothing but dust and emptiness and isolation, much like his character. As at this point in the story, left alone and isolated. The only other human being on the scene is Stella, up on the boardwalk outside of a shop that sells watches, jewelry, luggage, and more. Tumbleweeds have stumbled into the scene, as they have been doing throughout this exchange. From last minute, dust in the background of a windy day in Silverado. The score has continued on from last minute, where you hear just the constant hum of the strings building the tension, knowing these characters are going to draw at any moment. What's nice about being able to do a movies by minute is you can frame things up and you can slow things down to frame by frame if you want. So not just looking at the movie one minute at a time, but literally frames or seconds of this minute at a time. One of the things I will tell you is both of these guys do an amazing job drawing and firing quickly from their holster. Whatever training, whatever practice, whatever backgrounds, maybe they were both comfortable with firearms. Beautiful to watch them both draw. Both firing what looks like simultaneously. Now, from my eye, watching the fight, it looks as though when Brian Dennehy, or Cobb, draws his gun, he pulls his trigger a little too soon. His arm is about three quarters from being horizontal to the ground. In other words, he'd be pointing at the dirt somewhere between himself and Payton, but certainly not anywhere close to Payton's chest. Whereas when Kevin Klein's character of Payton has his gun drawn, the smoke cracks out of his gun while his arm is parallel to the ground. A beautiful indication that either Cobb and his his desire to try to be just a hair faster pulls his trigger just a little too soon, missing our hero, or our hero ended up pulling his trigger just a hair sooner, and the flinch of being hit with the round caused Cobb to pull the trigger prematurely. Could also be that Brian Dennehy, as an actor, just pulled the trigger too soon, but I kind of want to look at it from a cinematic perspective. From the beauty of this film, I'm going to say That it was because Cobb drew his gun a hair behind Payton. Payton was faster, more accurate, and as the round strikes Cobb, it forces him to fire his round sooner than he would have intended, thereby seeing the round go off somewhere else. Now, obviously they weren't firing real guns. We don't see a puff of smoke anywhere in the ground between the two actors indicating where that round hit. It's not necessary. We're not going to watch the movie in this sort of frame by frame. We're watching it in real time. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the music shifts and we get an immediate sense that Cobb has been fatally wounded. (laughs) I want to get to the music in just a second so let's put a pin in that because i find that the music does something differently much like the typical draw in the middle of the of the town was done differently i think the music is also a telltale sign that there's something different happening in this western versus westerns that had come before it let's keep looking at the action though the second we get the two gunshots We immediately cut to a close-up where the smoke from Cobb's gun is still blocking some of his figure, and we can already see the pain on his face as he winces and leans back, lurching almost at the shot and the recoil, his head finally going off and to the right as he spins and eventually puts his back to camera. We don't have a squib go off. We don't need to see blood. There's no reason for that. We know he's been mortally wounded. We can tell. His body language, his face, and the fact that he spins and puts his back to us tells us he has not long to live. He makes a desperate attempt to take a step as if to walk away and immediately collapses to his right knee. What's what's interesting is he never lets his left knee quite hit the ground. As if he's trying to figure out how to not fall. He's leaning a little more to his right. The wind coming in from his right, he's sort of leaning into the wind and then in a beautiful stage dive, falls forward onto his right shoulder, never quite collapsing flat on the ground, staying more with his right shoulder down and his left almost up, as if he couldn't quite crumble all the way, that he just gave up as he landed on the ground. The music, I think, here is not heroic, and I think there's a reason it's not heroic, is I don't think this is your typical kind of dastardly bad guy who was so blindly evil that you're cheering for his death. And at the same time, we know Payton has a checkered past himself. So it's not like he's the purified hero who's come in to save the day. Both of these characters have their flaws. Both of these characters rode together at one point in time. And as they said last week, bad luck, the whole thing with the dog Man's best friend somehow does something to Peyton to make him realize he can't go down this path any longer. Not ever realizing at that moment that his life was now changing to an intersection where he was going to actually run headlong into his former friend. And I think because it is the juxtaposition of two people who were friends, who ran in the same circle, who had the same views, now coming at odds that shows we don't have a heroic, triumphant sound, but almost a forlorn, painful sound, that we have come to the resolution and someone was going to have to die, but we don't rejoice in it, at least not at this moment. It's too heavy. It's too important. We recognize that something of of vast significance has transpired before our eyes, That that the events of the movie have led to the culmination of the shootout between two shootists And it just so happened, Payton was a half step ahead of Cobb. We cut to a shot of Linda Hunt. And remember what I said yesterday about my love of watching her facial work, of her acting work, of it coming across so naturally without having to overplay it, overstate it. Let the thoughts come through the face, through the acting, through the emotion of the nonverbal cues, not necessarily the verbal ones. Her close-up, she's looking at the crumpled body of Cobb. It's obvious she's staring where he fell. Her look is not of joy. Her look is not ecstatic. She is not suddenly feeling that this is a good day. She looks almost pained. Almost a little hurt. After all, This man did help her dreams become kind of a reality. She was always under him. She was always second to him. She was always beholden to his wishes. But he had always been there. Which again adds some complexity, some real life complexity to what would be a typical throwaway two-dimensional character in most other Westerns. She then looks down. She doesn't look back to Peyton right away almost as if looking at nothing, trying to process what just happened. Am I now free? Is it worth it? Was, it? was it the right thing to do? Was this the right thing to happen? There's so much going through her mind right now. And then, with the blink of her eye, she then turns her head and makes eye contact over to Payden. Her look is not of hero worship, her look is not of, you've saved the day. Her look is of concern. Her look is of, are you okay? Did you get hit? How do you feel? Are you are you going to be okay? And we cut immediately at that point to a close-up of Peyton. We see the church right over his shoulder. He also does not look triumphant. He doesn't look happy. He doesn't look like the hero saying, yippee-ki-yay. He's standing there, his eyes transfixed on the body of his former friend, a guy he was forced to have to confront and eventually kill. But as a reminder, just over his shoulder is the church. Everything else looks rustic, browns and earth tones, grays, greens. But the one thing that stands stark behind his shoulder is this beautiful, small, white church with a tower and a bell. And you realize that though it's a heavy thing that has just happened, and it is never something to rejoice in the taking of a life, that the right thing, the good thing, the positive is still on Payden's side. And the church behind him is symbolic of the sense that he has, in fact, rescued this town and has become the salvation to rescue them from the evil that had been Cobb. The wind blows. You sense his uh, handkerchief around his neck twisting in the wind. We then cut to a low side shot of his firearm, still in his hand, finger on the trigger. And he takes the gun and puts it into his holster. I don't know if this is a symbolic gesture to only have one bullet seen in the holster around his belt. And it looks like it can only hold one bullet as if it's a spare on that side of just one round. Makes me wonder if there was only one round in the revolver to begin with and it was going to come down to that single shot. We then cut to a wide shot, the same one that established the two of them standing in the middle of the street on the far edge of town with the church in the background And there's a notable American flag draped, hanging straight down vertically from one of the businesses on the right side of screen. Just a side note for you folks who may ever set dress any kind of a play or set up a flag in any kind of a shot, or maybe you're paying attention for Movies by Minutes. That is the correct way to hang a flag if you are going to do it vertically rather than horizontally. Whenever you're hanging the American flag, The blue field with the stars is always to the top left of how it is positioned before whatever group it's presented in front of. So when it's horizontal with the bars parallel to the ground, it'll be to your top left. But you don't just angle it down 90 degrees and say, oh, when it's vertical, that's how we do it, because then it's backwards. You would have to flip the flag then and make sure that the blue background is still to the top left. Just again, a little tip for you set dressers out there or anybody who's doing movies by minutes to watch for when maybe somebody gets it wrong what i like about this last lingering shot this very wide shot is you get a sense of the dust swirling still the cold and the isolation of this fight that has just transpired this gunfight with nobody else in sight it gives us a moment to also pause and reflect on what's just happened But the minute's not over! We're just past the 33 second mark, and we cut to what is obviously some time later. You sense it, you feel it, the music changes, and we see an extreme close-up of four shot glasses on a bar. Three of them filled, one being poured, and we can tell by the bottle, it's the good stuff. It's not the watered-down, make-you-go-blind variety. It's the same bottle that Stella and Peyton shared that moment with in the back of, of the saloon when they were talking earlier in the film. We can tell it's her just because of her hand and because of the jewelry. She finishes the pour on that fourth glass as the camera pulls up and we see her. And what's amazing is while she is pouring and she's just finishing... By the time her eyes come into frame, she's not even looking at what she's doing. As she's finished that pour, just as her eyes are up, she is not looking at what she's pouring. She is looking across at someone or something. And she has the smile and the, and the disposition of somebody whose weight has been lifted. She looks truly like someone who's taking a breath of freedom, a breath of fresh air for the first time. She seems pleased with where she is, with who's around her and what she's doing. Again, Linda Hunt doing an amazing job in just a few beats, not having to say anything. Her smile is genuine. And then we get a sense that she's looking at something else, but all in front of her, as if she's looking at multiple individuals. She then puts the bottle down, looks down, still with a smile, and you sense she's handing the shot glasses off, And then she gets another big grin as she has handed the glasses off and is raising the fourth for herself. And then we get a reverse shot coming over her shoulder and we see the people to whom she has been smiling, the people to whom she is pouring these drinks are the four main male characters of Silverado. Mal, Payton, Emmett, and Jake. Now, what's interesting from a film perspective, and I don't think it's necessarily an error, but the, the, the extreme close-up showed just four glasses with her filling up the fourth in the shot. There are five people <laughs> in the reverse. She's got a glass and all four of them are holding a shot glass. Now, I'm sure it's okay to explain there was a fifth off camera, but it is interesting to note that while she was pouring four, all five are holding a shot glass. And... We hear the words to California. California, 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 and they all echo that toast to California. They bring their glasses together and clink, and then they all take their respective drinks. What I find interesting is all the males, Danny Glover, Kevin Kline, Scott Glenn, Kevin Costner, they all do the typical male, toss it back, drink the whole thing down. It's a shot, right? You're taking a shot. doesn't matter if it's the good stuff. You're going to knock it back. Linda Hunt, the only woman in the scene, is the smart one. <laughs> it's the good stuff. She takes a sip. She's going to enjoy this drink. She's not going to knock it back and get out of town. She's, she's not going anywhere. She's staying right where she is. She now is the full and proper proprietor of the saloon, the place she's always wanted to have, and now it is truly hers to run the way she wants. And she is not about to knock it back quickly. She is going to savor every single moment of what her future now holds. The guys put their drinks down on the countertop and make as if to start to head out of the door. In fact, we hear Emmett say, And Mal says, right. And that's where the minute ends. We hear happier music playing on an old-time player piano. I don't see anybody playing it. could be somebody playing it. It could be a player piano. But it's the typical in-the-background Western saloon style of music. All four of our main heroes are walking out the door. Our heroine running the bar is enjoying her time to say goodbye to everybody. And on that note, it is my time to say goodbye. Goodbye to you from this minute. We still have three more minutes to go this week. Before I wrap up, just want to remind you, I am one of two voices of a team that makes up our own podcast, very similar for at least seasons one and two, called The Wilder Ride. It's thewilderride.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We did a Movies by Minutes format for seasons one and two. Season one, we broke down the Gene Wilder film Young Frankenstein, just like we're doing here. We did it for Season 2 with Blazing Saddles, and then for Seasons 3 and 4, had some amazing guests as we shifted to more of a Listener's Lounge talk show. I think all of those interviews you would enjoy going and exploring and, just, and you don't have to listen to them in order. You can listen to them here or there because I think they're evergreen. It's about the personality, the person we're interviewing, their story. It's about them. And then we have some fun along the way talking about some odd news and some other things that we just introduced as part of each and every Every show, So check those out. If you are brand new to this movie, you're brand new to this format, you're listening because you knew me, you knew Walt, you're a, f- a subscriber of The Wilder Ride, well guess what? Like everything else, there is a way to follow this show and get all caught up by going back. You can find the Silverado Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever podcasts are found. You can visit their website, silveradominute.com. You can also listen through the website if you want to go there if you're a social media person you're on facebook you want to engage something we missed something you think we got wrong something you just want to shout out to the group you can visit us by going to the midnight star the silverado minute listeners saloon that's on facebook if you like twitter you can find us by going to silverado mxm standing for movies by minutes that's silverado mxm Don't forget to come back tomorrow. We've got more goodbyes going on. It took a long time at this movie to introduce all the characters, so they're not about to just end the movie. We're going to have some long goodbyes. We have to establish who's going where and what the resolution is for each of these characters. To find that out, though, you're going to have to come back tomorrow, partner, on another episode of the Silverado Minute. Happy trails.